shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. Every single spring, that first day that I walk outside and I see that yellow dust all over my truck, I'm like, that is Satan's dandruff. It destroys me. I legitimately can't go outside for longer than three minutes because my eyes get swollen, my eyes get puffy, my nose gets congested, and I just simply can't breathe. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. When I started taking Claritin D about two months ago, I can finally get back outside and play pickleball again, which is what I love to do, but I couldn't do it because my allergies were so bad. Claritin D has legitimately allowed me to go outside again, ready to live life as if you don't have allergies it's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. It is Thursday, April 7th, 2022. This is episode 53 of the Human Hope Podcast. My name's Carlos, and I got one question. Y'all ready for this? Come on. Hey. That's right. Come on. Come on. Yeah. Come on. Yes, yes, yes. What is up? Welcome to another episode of the Human Hope Podcast with your host, Carlos Enrique Whitaker Guzman and Cabello, or Los for short. And let's call a spade a spade. And let's go ahead and say we will never, ever in the history of the Human Hope Podcast or in the future of the history or the, what am I trying to say? We will never, ever, ever have the energy during the intro that we had last week. And why is that? Well, because all of your favorite aunties delivered. I played it with them. And you know, like I wasn't like I wasn't brave enough to play the podcast intro with the guest this week. Um, I don't know if I can ever do that again, but the black aunties, they brought it. So again, a round of applause for the black aunties, Sharon, Sarah, Melinda. You guys were incredible. You guys, um, <sighs> Not only were they incredible, but the human home familia was incredible. I got a, I got a text from Sarah. Uh, I guess it was the next day. It was Thursday. And she said, the human hope family is incredible. You guys were DMing them. You were on their page, loving on them. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much uh, for all the love that you gave to the black aunties. Now, listen, we only, we only had three. There's a couple more and I'm going to get them all on and they will become, uh, they, they will be coming back on the on the podcast like that. That is for sure. I don't even know if you guys ever even want to hear me talk again. I don't even want to hear me talk again. I just want to hear them to talk. It was so good. And I also want to thank you, the listener, 
for leaning into difficult conversations, leaning into a conversation where maybe your perspective is going to be pressed a little bit, some buttons will be pushed. Um, and, and also, you know, not that you even have to change your mind about things, but just be opening to hear, open to hear, uh, is something that I am grateful that you do. Uh, I, I had a lot of great conversations with so many of my listeners this last week because, you know, Carlos, I never even thought of that. I don't really even necessarily know if I agree with that, but it's good that I'm thinking about it. That's all I want. That is all I want because, you know, here on the Human Hope Podcast, we do try to find hope even in tough situations. Um, And so although we have uh, we, you know, we have a history of talking and tackling about some uh, tackling some tough subject matters um, today, we are I'm, I'm purposely lightening it up. Okay, I'm lightening your load. So you don't have to be like, okay, oh my gosh, like, like what, what is Carlos going to have me confront in my own bias this week? No, that's not what we're doing. Uh, this week's a little bit lighter, a lot lighter, uh, but it, it's just as important, right? Um, I know my Bible says the joy of the Lord is my strength. It don't say like the heaviness of him is my strength. No, the joy. So we got to find some joy, right? Um, and so I'm, I'm going to bring you some of that this week, but I, I have a little caveat before we hop in. Um, First of all, before we jump in this conversation, I need to let all of you know that even though this conversation is light and even though um, we're talking about something that maybe not all of you are interested in, I know that, I want you to do me a favor, okay? If you are not interested in the subject matter of this podcast, which is totally fine, there's a lot of podcasts I listen to that I'm like, man, listen, he's interviewing like a, a pinky toe doctor and my pinky toe is fine, right? Like I, I don't need a pinky toe doctor. I, my pinky toe is fine. I'm not going to listen to this podcast. Now, if if you hear the subject matter of this podcast and you think, no, I don't, I, I don't need that. I would ask you to give it 20 minutes, just 20, 20 minutes, because I believe that even if you're not interested in the subject matter that I find um, fascinating on today's podcast, if you give it 20, you will end up being fascinated and not only fascinated, but your mind is going to be blown at the opportunity right outside of our doors to find breath. Um, so that, that's my, my kind of like, Hey, trust me. Okay. Instafam, human hope fam, trust me with this conversation. You need it. Even if you don't think you do. Okay. So that's per- perfect. Now we're all in, right? We're all, we're all in the conversation. Let me tell you where this conversation came from and stemmed from, you know, um, Although it's a conversation of breath, it came from a place when I was holding my breath. Let me explain. In 2019, it was one of the hardest years of, of kind of suffering through a season of anxiety that I'd ever suffered through. And I was having like physical manifestations of anxiety on a daily basis, heart palpitations, sting, uh, skin tingling, um, headaches, nausea, dizzy. And I mean, it was brutal to the point where I was like begging God on a daily basis to take it away, right? Like, you, we go through these seasons and it, I mean, it. sometimes you wonder if there will be an end to it. And so, and I, I happened to be in, in the middle of one of these seasons and I'll, I'll never forget, like I walked out to my front porch and I was just overwhelmed begging God. Like I took my Bible out there, but I opened it and there was like nothing. I mean, it, it just felt like it was empty. And I was like, oh, right. And I'm like, God, just take this freaking thing away. Like I am over it. I'm over it. I'm over feeling completely overwhelmed by life and by worry. And so as I'm like, you know, I'm on my front porch and as I'm um, yelling at God, I'll never forget this bird, this Robin 
like swoops down right in front of the porch and lands, I don't know, like five feet in front of me. Now, normally Robins are pretty skittish. If they see a human that close, they'll fly away. But this Robin, for some reason, just kind of landed and kind of looked at me and cocked his head left and right and was kind of bouncing around, just looking at me, like judging me almost. Um, now, listen, I know some of you guys like don't believe that birds are even real. I've seen your Instagram account. Okay. You think that there are drones sent from the government to spy on us. That's okay. So maybe it was a drone sent to spy on me, but this, this drone was staring at me, b- bouncing back and forth. And, and then like after about 10 seconds of judging me, I felt like it was judging me. I was like, why is he staring at me? He sticks his beak into the ground and yanks out the fattest King Kong looking worm you've ever seen. I mean, this thing was like wiggling and alive. Right. And I'm like, <gasps> Oh my God, how in the world did it know there was a worm there? I mean, like it stuck its beak in the dirt and just yanked it up. It didn't go, it didn't stick its beak like in 10 different holes. No, just one and wink. Then it kind of looked at me again and took off. And immediately my mind went straight to like, how did it do that? So you know what I did? My grown 45 year old self got out of my chair, went to the grass and started digging. And I start digging exactly where that bird went looking for a worm. It's not like it dug like a foot down. It just stuck its beak in and I can't find a single worm. And I'm like, what? How, how did it do that? How in the world did it do that? It blew my mind. Right. And so I'm like, this is crazy. I can't find a worm. So when I go, I sit back down, that bird comes back, lands right there, right where all my little crusty fingers were digging in the dirt sticks its beak back in the dirt. This is probably five minutes later. Yanks out another fat King Kong looking smushy worm. And then it takes off again. And immediately my mind went straight to the scripture. Matthew six. And this is what it says. Uh, Matthew 6, 20, 26. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or stow away in barns. Yet our heavenly father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you Add one day to your life by worrying. Oh man, it, it, th- that moment changed everything because a verse suddenly made sense to me, right? Like I've read that verse. I've heard people talk about that verse. I'm like, okay, whatever. But no, like the homeboy Robin did not yank that grub out the ground, fly to a barn and like file that worm away for like a day that he's going to need a worm. No, right? Like he just, he knew that there was another worm. I just couldn't find that worm, but there was another worm right there. And I just, that moment gave me such breath and things started getting better because I started looking up and I started realizing that there was an entire ecosystem of birds right above my house in my front yard and my backyard that were being provided by on a daily basis. And they weren't worrying about anything because everything was being provided to them and it changed everything for me. And I became a bird man, right? So like summer 2020, right? When we're all like locked down, I, my, my entire Insta story content was birds. If you guys were around, um, you know, (laughs) I was, I, I like, I overdid it probably. I apologize. But I, I mean, I was all in and I've documented bluebirds and robins and the whole thing. So I tell you all that because I needed you to know where this conversation came from. Yes, we're going to be talking about backyard birds. We're going to be talking about bluebirds and robins. We're also going to be talking about monarch butterflies and the mind-blowing existence that they are. I mean, these butterflies, a little butterfly flies from Canada to Mexifreaking-Co. And millions of these butterflies fly to the exact same place from across North America, not flying together, but separately. And they end up in the same place and they hang out for like eight months and they wake back up and they 
hang out with a boo daddy butterfly and they make some babies and then they fly like to the Southern United States. And it's just, it's crazy. You can't look at this and not think like there's gotta be something bigger than me planning all this out. So the breath in your lungs is going to be brought to you today by my friend, Katie Walsh. And Katie is an expert when it comes to backyard birding and also um, migrating monarch butterflies. I'm telling you, your mouth is going to be hanging open the entire episode because there's so much about the, the nature right in front of us that I believe connects our heart to something so much greater and gives us a freedom we didn't even know and a breath we didn't even know that we were holding. Ah, oh, it's so good. So um, there it is. There, that's my pitch to listen to the rest of this episode. It is going to free you in a way you didn't even know you needed freeing. All right. So enjoy this conversation with our brand new human hope friend, Katie Walsh. Okay, Human Hope Familia, we are here with my friend Katie Walsh. Katie, how are you today? I am well. This feels really good to be back connected with you, Carlos, and chatting things that are right up my alley. The last time we did this, we were talking monarchs, and I'm excited to talk. Yes, Yes, we were talking monarchs. Now, now I'll go ahead and let people know. I mean, you were on a... Uh, we'll say limited edition podcast because I only uh, I had this podcast called fill in the blank that I maybe had like eight episodes and it was during quarantine of 2020. I was like, let me start a podcast. And you were one of the first people I thought of having on there. And yes, you came on and talked about monarchs. Now, can you tell the people why it is I picked you to talk about monarchs? Well, you and I were connected through Instagram. If I'm going way back. Yes. Because you had this monarch that I think you were you were concerned you had concerns about right <laughs> you were, you you were wanting to have this revival of this monarch and a lot of people that had already been connected with me on my Instagram page uh, connected the two of us they reached out to me and said you got to help this Carlos Whitaker <laughs> and they reached out to you and said there's this girl on my little Cape Cod and she will help you and there we were we there- were. Um, all things monarch, and it happens to be something that I'm very passionate about. I garden for the monarchs, and yes. so right to right where to go, and and it yeah. was it was awesome. They, they did. I had just okay. So again, for the for the numerous people that weren't following me three or four years ago when this happened, I uh, I I just yeah, I walked up my driveway and there was a butterfly like in the grass, and it it I was like, why is there a butterfly? And it was laying on its side. And I was like, oh no, you know, I've got a tender heart. And I'm like, what do I do? So, you know, I, d- I did what any third grader would do. And I, 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 I got a little jar and I put some grass in it because of course a monarch needs grass, you know, and, and then I put it in there and then everyone started tagging you. And I was like, and then I went on your page and you like, you were growing monarchs or something. I was like, what is happening? Uh, and then you had this like beautiful, you know, monarch mansion that you'd built to, for these monarchs in their cocoons. And next thing you know, I am like neck deep in monarch world. Uh, you sent me a couple things, uh, helped me out, you know, the, and I think it's actually still a highlight on my Instagram. If you want to go look for it, I think it was called uh, Beatrice, the butterfly and Beatrice, the butterfly flew off a day later. She, she regained her strength and took off, but that is how uh, we connected. And honestly, you know, Katie, you, just your your tender heart towards <laughs> towards nature, your tender heart towards um, 
uh, just just animals and birds and gardening um, is something that I really connected with. And there is a serenity about you. There's a serenity that that comes from your spirit. It's a very sweet spirit that, you know, I think that's why a lot of people do want, you know, want to hang out with you on Instagram or wherever, whatever it is. I like to like in the mornings when I'm done doing, you know, the, my morning things and I have my cup of coffee, I open up my Instagram account, uh, my Instagram, I, I open up your page and I see what you're talking about. Cause it's always so kind and gentle and soft. Um, and you, you're just, yeah, I just, I wanted you on here because you are a breath of fresh air and I'm excited for the new podcast listeners, uh, to get to know you a little bit. Well, I appreciate that, Carlos. And you're you're not the first person that said that to me. And it's actually, to this day, I think I've had this account now for six years. And it still never ceases to amaze me how many times. And I actually, like retelling this, I get goosebumps that the amount of people that will reach out to me and just say, your page is therapeutic to me, yeah. or your page has a, a spiritual underline to it, or your page has um, given me so much peace, P- people that are healing from different things. And I... I didn't know that I didn't know that that was what was happening on the other side of it all. I just liked to share things that I do and find beautiful. And a lot of that has to do with nature. I've always deeply in my soul loved nature. I remember being a little girl and we were at a a friend of the family's house and their dog was outside. Dogs go outside. They're comfortable outside. (laughs) It was just devastated in my mind that this dog was outside in the cold. And I like found all these blankets and sweatshirts while my parents were having a good time with their friends. And I, I'm covering up this dog. (laughs) And and so me, I go back to little assignments from kindergarten, first grade and everything still all points back to that. Just that love I have for everything. And, and it, it's, it's a, it's a blessing. I'm, I'm, I love having that about myself. Um, because I, I, I definitely think that is how, I just navigate the world. Yeah. I just, that level of compassion. So no, it is, it is a beautiful thing, Katie. And you know, we, you know, I brought you on here specifically and we're going to get to it. We're going to talk about, you know, everyone that follows me knows that I am a bird lover. I can't wait for the spring because I can't wait to watch my robins in my yard, build their nests. My bluebirds last year was um, my second year. I did, I did bluebirds and um, I love birds and we're going to talk about birds. We're going to talk about, you know, what it is maybe people can do to attract birds. Um, you know, just our understanding of birds, why watching birds is good for our mental health. Literally, there's all sorts of things that, that I want to get to, but what I want to touch on that you just said um is i think that a lot of people don't understand our human need for connection to nature i and and i feel like that that is a reason why a lot of people do come to your page um because we're so busy that you know next thing as they're scrolling through suddenly it's just like oh my gosh it's katie's backyard and she's zooming into these bluebirds and why is this giving me so much peace and talk to us about maybe why you think um why you think we it is necessary for us to get out into nature and what is it about nature that really can heal us? That's a great question. And there is a lot of research to this. So it's not just something I'm simply saying and hoping Love you guys it. will. There is really, truly a lot of research behind the time that we spend outside. It's a disconnect from all the things that we are really literally connected to these days mm. through technology. And it, it is in, a, in essence brings us back to a more, simple time, you know, before all of this stuff existed and a more primitive time when we could just explore and learn from nature and navigate it and let it 
bring us all of that sensory input that is through the sight, the smell, the touch, the the peaceful stillness, yeah. whatever it be. And I think for us right now, we're we we're at such a, a tricky time. You know, we're we're mm. kind of in and out of this pandemic still, and a lot of people that were forced to have to be home found themselves like seeking more while mm. we were. We can only do so many things in home in the home before we go a little crazy. And so in the birding world, I mean, they saw a huge surge in people that were starting to want to connect to birds better, provide for the birds, to have something else to watch besides the same Netflix show five sure. times over and over. And, uh, and people really, truly did start to get out there and see what they could do to provide for nature right there at home while we were home. So I guess the silver lining sometimes to this pandemic is that it did. It did bring people more to outside. We were limited on things that we could do. We were limited on what we could do. Uh, things were shut down. Things were closed. And so people were were seeking out nature parks and local parks and state parks and things like that to do with their family that were free and accessible. And that's the beauty of nature. It is always accessible. It's always here. It can be wherever we want it to be. And it can especially be home. And that's that's kind of what I sort of like to try to um, maybe promote on my page that yeah. we can we could truly bring nature home if we if if we just go outside and scope our yards and see what we might yeah. be able to do. Sure. Yeah, you know, um, it we can. You know, it's all around us. Like it is mm -hmm. all around. I mean, I think during quarantine twenty twenty. I went so far as to like create almost like a bird watching news network in my yard. Like, you know, I was editing things. I had camera and slow motion cameras. We were naming the birds. People were all into the birds. And, um, you know, I, I'm fast. I'm, I'm just, I'm fascinated by a couple of things. The first thing is that, you know, I, even if you live in a big city, you can step out onto the sidewalk and look up and see an entire ecosystem and world that is happening in nature. These birds are they know what to do they're they're doing things out of instinct because they were created to do these things and when you watch it you really become really awe i mean like you're at least for me i'm awestricken by you know the simple uh, you know act of a bird building a nest the simple act of a bird knowing how many hours a day to sit on the eggs like all of these things and i know people may be listening to this right now like dying laughing like carlos like relax you know but it is it is it i see god in all of these things like it is it is fascinating to me. And so already like I was all in with birds, but then when I got connected to your account, um, I, I my awe went from like, oh, like this is really cool that what birds do, but then you're, you, I started going down this whole monarch, um, just, uh, you know, rabbit hole. And then I start, you know, looking on your account and you're like, yeah, the monarchs are they're on their way. And I'm like, what is she even talking about? They're on there. What does that even mean? Well, yeah. Then I start looking and I'm looking up YouTube videos and these monarch freaking butterflies that are in our yards here in North America journey to Mexico to some place where they go hang out, you know, for the, for their life cycle to begin. This is what I want you to do for a second. I want you to give us just maybe a five to 10 minute, um, let me blow your minds with the beauty of the monarch butterfly um, TED talk is, is what I want I, from Katie. I can do, do that. Can you do that? To, I will try to keep it five to 10 minutes. Oh, and I, if you go 15 or 20, that's totally fine. Let's, this is a podcast. <laughs> yeah, we can talk as long as I want. Hey there. 
I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, this is a good time to talk about it because actually about a month and a half ago or so, I actually got to go down to Mexico to see the other side of it all. And that wow. was, that's a of mine to see. Uh, I knew uh, after really getting into this whole monarch thing that that's what they did. And actually, we as a, as a nation didn't know that about the monarchs until just r- right around the mid-70s. Wow. And it, that just decided to just investigate and put a little sticker on a monarch wing and kind of like a message in the bottle, put it out there and see if it, if anybody could ever get back to them and say, this is where your monarch was found. And what? it was thanks to that, which now has become monarch tagging, which we could touch on that. Uh, that's, that's how researchers essentially follow the patterns of their flight. My Everybody. mouth is hanging open. People can't, well, can't see this. But literally, my mouth is hanging open listening to you. Well, and you're not the, every day. I'm still telling this story to people that, that still say, you mean they don't just like stay right here and just like hang out in the trees and stuff all winter? Right. right. There are many migratory insect that makes that kind of venture, which is what makes them so fascinating. Um, all of our Teach other us. stuff hunkers down here and just hangs out, but not them. They They make a big old destination trip down to Mexico and they know what they're doing. They, they, uh, they're actually solitary migrators. So though they might fly together in, in what looks to be premeditated groups is just by the weather. So they all are born with that same instinct of what to do. They're not following a pack, sort of like when you see birds and they're in that shape. Uh, Monarchs don't do that at all. So they're just simply um, born with that instinct. They know what to do and they, they they take several generations just to do that over the course of one full year. So when Okay, what does I, that mean? When I was in Mexico seeing them down there, that was the super monarch generation, the final generation of monarchs that are born here in the States with us. They are genetically predisposed to live longer than the rest of the monarchs that led led them up to that point. So they live about six to eight months. And they are the super monarchs do genetically stronger to make that flight down to Mexico and overwinter there. They do not uh, become monarch butterflies and mate right away. They go to Mexico. They go into what we call diapause. It's a long, sleepy rest where they kind of roost together and they stay warm. And at the end of that time, which was right around when I was down there, they start to sense the weather changing. They sense the sun changing. They kind of wake up from these roosting colonies and they mate. And then that generation that comes from that mating cycle is what uh, we what starts our generations up here in the United States. Uh-huh. So it's a total of four cycles. Um, where that essentially begins, that's the chicken and egg conversation. Sure, yeah, it's been those four generations uh, with the short generations happening. Um, your your generation one is starting to probably go down by where you are now. So they that that the super generation of monarchs that just was in Mexico okay. mated, they come up to the Southern United States and lay those eggs. Uh, that so, mother- so, okay, hold on. I'm going to ask you a lot of questions as we're going through this. So, so the ones that start in Mexico, 
were they the ones that ended up in Mexico or are they are like, like they were, he, they were in America. They mm-hmm. went to Mexico. They slept. They took a fat nap. They woke up. They're like, Hey, what's up, honey? They made it. And then they fly back to America. Right. The most of the, most of the females that can make it back, the males tend to, there's a great percentage of them just that they made it and they did their part That's and it. For them. they're done. Okay. So a lot of those males will die there in Mexico. Okay. And hey, that yep. used to be really sad, but now I know it's part of that whole cycle and that, that has to happen. Yeah. Females are the ones that venture back to the United States and they're looking for that fresh milkweed where they don't have milkweed in Mex- in Mexico. Okay. So up back here to the United States and in Texas, uh, Louisiana, um, Oklahoma, maybe even um, some parts of Florida, all along that Southern bank. She is looking for that milkweed so that she can all of those eggs. And then shortly after that, she will perish. And so that egg laying starts that next generation. And as that generation builds, over the course of those three generations, they move further and further up north in the United States looking for milkweed. That's why they call it journey north, because everything that migrates for the winter yeah. has to come back north. Yeah. And so uh, by the time they reach, let's just say the Midwest, that could be generation two, even generation three. And then the ones that see the ones that Canadians see, that's that's pretty much maybe the end of generation three and then the start of the super monarchs because by the time they make it that far north, that yeah. super monarch is headed back south. So they make a very, very long venture down to Mexico. So so how far north will the super generation that of of the females that leave Mexico how how far north can you see some of those some of those monarchs or like I'm in Nashville. Am I even seeing any of those or am I for certain, for certain, just seeing uh, the, the generation after them? She will fly as far as she needs to, to find, to find milkweed, milkweed. Deposit those eggs. So sometimes on a rare occasion, you might see that early monarch. That's just find, finding that milkweed. So sometimes if they show up, you'll know she'll look really tattered. She'll look really faded. Yeah look really weathered because she just flew a long way to find that milkweed just to lay those eggs. So if they have, if there's a, a good abundance of, of milkweed in those Southern States, they won't need to go further North than yeah. that. But yeah. if, if, if for some reason they're not sensing it, which is what they do, they have these chemical receptors in their feet. That's how they find the milkweed. If they have to fly further to find it, they will as long as they can, they'll fly wow. as long. They'll fly as long. Okay. So then, they lay their eggs, the eggs, eggs, tell us a little bit about the process from, um, an egg on a milkweed leaf, uh, because this is something that, you know, uh, pretty detailed because you, you will actually, um, uh, I gather them, I guess is, is, is how it works. Yeah, Go ahead and explain uh, that. It, the, the terms are sort of interchangeable. Some say raise, some say rear. Okay. Uh, it, the eggs, it starts by them just depositing those like those eggs on the undersides of milkweed leaves and they are very tiny. They're yeah. very tiny. They're almost hard to spot because sometimes they might look like the sap of the milkweed. Oh wow. And there's they're they're smaller than a grain of rice by the time that they even crawl out of that tiny egg. So uh that is the start of um their caterpillar cycle. Okay. It will 
go through a few cycles just to become a monarch, just like they go through a few cycles to make the whole year of a monarch. Yeah. Uh, Caterpillars do too. They have stages. And so when they crawl out of that egg, the very first thing they do is they eat that eggshell. And then right away, all they know to do is just eat. So they're going to eat those tender leaves of the milkweed. Sounds like my kids. I mean, you to eat until they truly outgrow their skin. Yeah. And then they do what we call molt. Okay. And they molt and essentially crawl out of out of their skin in place. So it looks like they're walking on a treadmill. Uh-huh. <laughs> they're shedding their skin behind them. And then they will eat that. Oh, wow. Eats, so the hungry, hungry caterpillar. Yeah, it's real. Off, except they weren't eating ice cream cones. and, uh, and legs <laughs> I, of chicken. I love that book. I love that I book. <laughs> That's a good book. And it, it, it does for children's sake. Yeah. Uh, it does help with the idea and the concept of what they do. And that truly is they just eat and they produce frass, which is the scientific name for, for their poop. Okay. And frass. they just frass. do that. Well, eventually they are in that final stage. And that final stage is when they go and they find a safe, secure place to attach their hind legs. And then they go into what we call J. It looks okay. like the J formation. They hang upside down. Are and they hanging they, on the milkweed? Are they actually hanging on the milkweed itself? Or they find no. something else? No, that's very rare. They will only do that if they really like say they're enclosed already for somebody that takes them in like myself. Oh, okay. Yep. Uh, and But they will, ideally, they want to go far, far away. They are known to crawl as far as football fields away. What? from. Yes. And they can be found on your gutters, your fence lines, wow. like flower pot rims. And so those are places that if you have milkweed and you have nectar flowers, you might take a peek at and you just never know. One time I found one up on the upper part of my gazebo. So oh my gosh, that's amazing. <laughs> they, they are very interestingly choosy. Yeah. And from there, they will form their green chrysalis. Okay. Uh, that final molting stage until they eclose and become the monarch. Wow. And then so I think when I was first um introduced to your account you i'd gone to a couple of videos and it was like because what i read you were talking about how when they come out of their i don't want to call it a cocoon is it a cocoon it it, it is a cocoon for some species but for the monarch it's a chrysalis a chrysalis okay good I'm, i want to get all my language right right monarch <laughs> lives matter i want to get everything right um so they come out of their chrysalis and you were filming it and you were talking about how important that moment is the moment that they like, if something they're hanging on by, I don't even know what it is. And if they fall, their wings can get damaged. Like it's, it's such a, a, a beautifully like intense and tragic dance that they dance in order to get out of these things. Talk to us about that moment. Cause there was something about for me when, when you were uh, explaining that on your Instagram account that again, I don't think we realized just how beautifully perfect nature is and, and how, how fragile it is. Talk to us about when they, when they come out of those. uh, Yeah. And I think this also speaks to the resilience of them, of what we know they have to go through to, to become just a butterfly. Yeah. And not even, not even considering what they do from that point on to fly and all the things that they have obstacles in. And this is, we're talking just to become a butterfly. So, so before I go into some of that detail, I will just mention that less than 3% of laid eggs make it to that full adult size because of all of those things that they have to go through and endure. Um, A lot of times too, they're 
predated. So they're eaten by um, other predators in the garden and things like that, that that's just, that is, that is what nature, that's nature's way. Yep. Uh, so those are some of the things that kind of prevent. So when we see this adult butterfly, this actual orange and black butterfly, it's, I think it makes it that much more precious and beautiful to know of all those things that it just went through to become that. Yeah. And all the we'll go through just to make that full year long cycle of, of the monarch butterfly. And they, I think more and more it's become so fascinating to people. Now that we have the studies and research behind it, you see, if you look on your, um, if you, if you have a smart TV and you search monarch butterfly, like documentaries or short films, oh, there's yeah. so out there now that that just show that and i love that it's it's shedding a greater light on that stuff now and so going back to your question about what they that kind of dance that they have to do once they emerge from that and it helps to have a visual so so do check that out if you have time out some of those little short films because i'm sure they show some of that maybe sped up and um or even even in real time which only takes uh, from the time they start to emerge out of that chrysalis to when they um, are fully uh, out with their wings, it's only about two to three minutes. It's oh. very short. So during that time, what they're hanging from is is a small, I like to call it a little stem. It's okay. something that actually is inside their body as a caterpillar, but as they molt from that caterpillar to into their chrysalis, it actually comes out. It's like an inner stick. Really? And um, it's called a... Uh, Oh, hello. Here I am with oh, all my... Now it's I okay. I don't think we're going to be offended that you don't know what the little <laughs> stick that comes out of their body is, okay? Thanks, Katie. i at myself right now for not coming up with that. Um, I will come up with it. It'll hit me. Uh, okay, that's it fine. A ton of tiny microscopic little fibers that are essentially like little prickly things. Okay. And they put they, they adhere that to whatever it is that they're hanging the chrysalis from. Okay. It is... The smallest little black piece, yet it's enough to hold that chrysalis. Um, wow. Should they should they uh, adhere it the right way and everything goes smoothly through like winds and storms and storms, rain, wow. wind, all of those things, it will keep it hanging. Um, sometimes they do fall, and a monarch can emerge from a chrysalis. It can close from a chrysalis on its side if it's fallen. Okay. Um, the tricky part is is having, when a monarch is coming out of that green chrysalis, they're detaching now from that black appendage, let's just call it that. And what they're now having to hold on to upside down, because now they're a a butterfly, they have to get out of that chrysalis shell and attach their legs to whatever it is they're hanging from. And so sometimes there's a mishap. They can't quite catch on and they may fall yeah um if the fall is a great fall like let's just say that chrysalis is up really high sometimes it can be fatal yeah if it's short distance fall sometimes they know to crawl themselves back up uh-huh. reattach and hang and the purpose to that is they know that they have to let their wings dry it's like getting a wet shirt out of oh. a washing machine and it's all crumpled and it has to lay flat and dry that's that's the same thing that their wings have to do wow. and if don't do that and they're they they dry with a wrinkle or a deformity uh-huh. then they're not going to be a strong flyer and they oh. may not even fly at all wow. so they know that they have to have the most optimal conditions to 
hold on and let their wings and their wings really do come out looking like crumbled like paper mache uh-huh. and they're really small and compressed. And by the time they unfold and dry, it's amazing how all of that wing was in there. And, and how long again, is that from the moment they're all crumpled up to their wing is fully expanded and dried? How, how that long is that? Two hours. So when okay. we take butterflies, we don't want to release them right away. In fact, some like to say, hold on to them for a day or so because okay. there's a whole time process. Um, they're still losing some of that fluid from inside of that chrysalis. And they will, t- they kind of tell you they're ready. Um, inside of the in- enclosures, what they kind of do is they'll start to flap their wings while they're still holding on in place. It's it's like when uh, like a little propeller plane is still on the ground and it's got that prop going. Yeah. Um, telling you it's time for takeoff. Yeah. They do that. And so in the wild, they're just going to take off when they're ready. But sometimes that doesn't happen for a while, hours to up to a day. And in fact, they don't need to eat right away either. They're not interested in eating. They're just interested in getting that wing strength. Un- I, I, I could literally talk about this forever. I, it's amazing. No, it is amazing. I, I do have a couple of monarch questions specifically for you. So, Around what time of year, if we were to see a monarch, so just say, for instance, that, you know, um, the people that are listening to this podcast, I know I've got listeners all over Mm -hmm. the world, uh, but at what point of year, when we see a monarch, can we be almost certain that that's one of the super generation monarchs? Oh, that's or, a great or is or is that even a is is there even an answer to that? You know, like like I guess I guess how I'm thinking in my head is like, well, if they're coming from Mexico and I know that they're working their way up, and I see one mm-hmm. in whatever a early spring or whatever it is uh, or summer, whatever, uh, but then I see them coming back later. Am I am I pretty sure that the ones that are coming back that I see are the super generation? Well, to answer that question, the monarchs leave. Their overwintering site in the mountains of Mexico, any time between at the very earliest, we're talking maybe mid-February, and this okay. can change year, year to year based on temperature and climate, uh-huh. those things, they all play a role because they need to sense it's time. Right. So it, this can be a little flexible here, but uh, maybe around mid-February to as they, they have just left in some of those overwintering sites and we're just now in the start of April. Yeah. So. Uh, last year, by this time, they were all long gone by the end of March. Huh. So it kind of just depends on those factors. But we're talking anywhere between February and early April that okay. they're leaving those that overwintering site of Mexico by, uh, I would say, early April to end of April. Those southern states that I just mentioned a little while ago are going to see those monarchs. The eastern monarchs are the ones that make that overwintering down to Mexico. Western monarchs are an entirely different population of monarchs. They don't leave the California area. They have an overwintering area there just just on their own. So all monarchs that we're talking about right here, right now, that just has to be. So east east of the Rockies. So um, some states really don't see many monarchs at all. A lot of states might see way way more than others. It just depends on food sources and yeah. and and a lot of the migratory paths, both north and back south, uh-huh. kind of follow that same linear pathway. I guess uh, they love to funnel down along the Great Lakes when the okay. supermarket going back down south. Um, but as far as coming north, 
the southern states are really going to be the ones that are going to see those super monarchs. Yeah. Um, if in the rare event we were to see one of those super monarchs uh, in the maybe Midwest or northern states, uh, that probably wouldn't happen for like I know here. I don't expect to see monarchs here until maybe sometime in June. Oh, wow. OK. That's because it's got to take Is it's got to right? take those monarchs to lay those eggs and those lay those eggs to make their way on up so um but the as far as that super generation of monarchs go the southern states have started seeing them okay. and they will continue to see them over the course of these couple of weeks because the ones that just left mexico they're probably still making their way out of mexico now and that's just mind-blowing a good way to know and uh, something that's very helpful because again it can change from year to year, year to year uh, Journey North is okay. a website that people can actually report their sightings for different species. So there's everything on there from hummingbirds to orioles to monarch butterflies, and it's all plotted on a map and it's all listed in a graphic format with people with their sightings based on state. So when I looked at it the other day, I think the only sightings I saw, I saw uh, a lot of them were Texas. And Texans, if you're listening out there, you are some of the first ones to see those monarchs. So they're looking for that milkweed if you have it down there. <laughs> I love it. Plant it. Plant the milkweed. Plant the milkweed. That's right. We, we need to have. We need to come up with a merch line with with just you know plant the milkweed on it. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I have a T-shirt that says "Got milkweed like got milk." Oh, but that's got milk. awesome. So yeah, people that. are people are clever out there. <laughs> no, that is that is so well. It's you know it is fascinating and. And that, that is, you know, I, I think the listeners right now are like, I, I know for me, my mouth still hangs wide open thinking that these monarchs fly that far with their little wings, you know, through storms and through all the things they, they figure out a way to do it every single year. And the whole generation thing, I mean, there's a whole sermon in that. I mean, that is, it's just beautiful to see how mm -hmm. the, you know, how, how they're, they know their role and, you know, without them doing their role, the whole thing would end, it would all fall apart. It it's so true. And it's so, so, so fascinating to scientists this to this day that, that truly study this. Uh, they still really don't know why they go back to this one area, these the, this mountain area of Mexico and what it is that made them begin to go there and makes them continue to go there and how each generation knows to go there. They don't tell each other that. Yeah. They're born independently and they migrate independently, yet they all know these millions and millions and millions of monarchs. There's something that they know that we don't know. There's something that they detect that we haven't uh, been able to even pinpoint yet in science. And that's just, it makes it just, uh, my jaw still drops. And yeah. I, I love you know, it. So seeing them down there, seeing that other side of it all and seeing them in those millions and millions of of groups of cluster uh, clusters of millions and flying around by the millions it was it was just it, it, words don't do it justice it was and beautiful you went down there and you you saw where they go hang i did i did and it's what i mean was it was it what what i am imagining it would be it's yes it was what my dreams are made of oh, uh, yes. I, I just know I, I don't I don't know if there's anything more beautiful than knowing that when you hear the noise that sounds like leaves blowing in the wind, but it's millions of monarchs and their tiny wings making the sound of oh. leaves. And uh, that's incredible. And seeing them um, 
I just think the the flutter of a butterfly is one of the most beautiful, delicate, yeah. innocent things. You know, I always tell people butterflies want no harm to anything. They just want to flutter around and be beautiful. And yeah. I think that's why I love them so much that they just truly are. They don't want beaut- anything but to be beautiful. I love that. <laughs> and seeing them down there in such volume and, and honestly true seeing else seeing the, the, the care mm. that um, the Mexican individuals in that area provide for them. Yeah. I, I loved that so much. Um, it, it really connected to very different places. Um, I find, I find that there's, something so connecting to the United States and Canada and Mexico because yeah. Honorks visit all three. Um, and it's it's a nice partnership that's been mm. built all because of these beautiful, beautiful insects. What a breath of fresh air Katie is. I told y'all. And we're going to get back to her in just a second after I talk about two of our partners here at Human Hope. The first one is Athletic Greens. I started taking Athletic Greens because my gut health was a mess. Back in 2020, I was going to the doctor. They were about to put me on all sorts of drugs, um, on antacids. I had a colonoscopy and I knew that I wanted to do this naturally. Enter Athletic Greens. Let, Let me tell you. Okay, listen, the founder of Athletic Greens, it was created because he experienced a ton of gut health issues and ended up on a complicated supplement routine to recover. It cost him over $100 a day, right? So he created Athletic Greens after experiencing how difficult it was to create an optimal nutrition plan on his own. So I started taking it and it actually has helped my gut health so, so much. It's also friendly for my lifestyle, right? I've got these packets that I take with me as I travel. I pour them in a little cup of water and it actually tastes good. So whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free or gluten-free, it doesn't matter. It is for you. They have over 7,000 five-star reviews. They're recommended by tons and tons of people that you trust. And this is what I'm going to do for you guys. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash human hope. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash human hope to take ownership over your health and pick up up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. This week's episode is also partnering with Chime. You guys know I love Chime, not only because they're an award-winning mobile app, checking account, and debit card, but because Chime will pay the human hope member up to two days early. What do I mean by that? Well, listen, no one likes waiting on a paycheck, especially when you got bills due. Good thing there's Chime. Now you can get your paychecks up to two days early with direct deposit. That is up to two more days to save, pay your bills, and generally just feel good about your money situation. Okay, so this is what we are going to do. I'm going to ask you to head over to chime.com slash human hope. And you can stop waiting on that paycheck. Get started with Chime today. Apply for a free account. It takes less than two minutes. Just head to chime.com slash human hope. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bank Corp or Stride Bank NA members FDIC. Early access to direct deposit funds depend on payer. Let's... um. 
let's transition into maybe uh, a part of your, uh, we'll, we'll call it our backyard sanctuaries that, um, that maybe we can, we can have more access to, which are the birds that, um, that are visiting us, you know, every year, you know, there's, there's a meme that started going around, uh, during 2020. And I think it's like Joe Rogan on the side of a, a wrestling match and a bunch of dudes like are looking and it says something like every 50 year old looking at their bird feeders this afternoon. You know, it, it was this meme that was, I, I probably get it sent to me every single day from somebody on Instagram going, look, Carlos, this is you. Uh, but it's so true because over, over 2020, a lot of people got into looking at the birds in their backyard, right? We're taking walks, we're seeing things. And I know for me, you know, and I've actually talked about this already in the intro to the podcast, to this conversation, but you know, I talked about how I was going through a pretty thick season of anxiety and there was just a lot of um, anxiousness in my life, like palpable, um, uh, like my body was going through, you mm-hmm. know, reactions of anxiety. And I was sitting out on my front porch and I just remember, I'll never forget, like I, I was kind of post panic attack coming down. I'm like, you know, God, like what's happening and everything's so stressful. And I saw this Robin just kind of land in my, like, I don't know, 10 feet in front of me kind of look at me with its little bird head side to side and out of nowhere sticks its beak in the ground and pulls out this worm and then flies away. And I'm like, how in the world did that Robin know that there was a worm right there? So of course, you know, I go, I I walked out to where it picked the worm up and I don't see a worm. Like I, I can't see any worms. Like how did it know there was a worm right there? And then my brain just started going and I'm like, you know what? If this bird's going to be okay, like, like if, the, if this bird has everything it needs right here, I think, I think I'm going to be okay. And so honest to God, the bird watching thing for me was a, a point of healing for my anxiety that I just was like, there's all these animals around me that are being taken care of and they don't have a worry in the world. Why, why am I going to, you know, worry and stress about all these things? It's going to be okay. That's really where my, my bird watching, um, beginning came from. And then next thing you know, I see, I don't know, it was probably a different Robin, but on my gutter to the left of my patio, I'm watching this Robin begin to build a nest. And for me, that was my first um, foray into bird watching. I just, I would go out every day and I would watch it build the nest. And then, you know, next thing I know, I was like, I wonder if there's any eggs in there. And I peek up there, there's no eggs. And then one day there's an egg. And then the next day there's another egg. And the next day there's another egg. And then, you know, over the course of what, 21 days or, or however, 28 days, however long it was, it built the nest, it laid the eggs, and then it's feeding these birds and then they take off. And I just remember, Katie, at the end of whatever that life cycle was from beginning of the nesting period to these little birds flying away, I, my again, my mind was blown. <laughs> I was like, there's all these little things around us. So I'm coming to you because I know that you you know, you, you love to to talk about the birds in your yard and to help people with it. I think there's a lot of people listening to this podcast right now that don't even know that they need to start watching birds. There are some people that don't even know that this could be the thing for them that centers them and grounds them. Tell us a little bit about what it is about birding uh, and the bluebirds and all the different kinds of songbirds in your yard that brings you some of that grounding. I think that the whole thing about backyard birding we just, we'll just call it birding yeah, yeah. Uh, is, is that it's got so many layers. So you've kind of get, you, you have this introductory layer of, I saw this bird in my yard the other day and it's <laughs> the thing and you're, and it's just broad. 
You don't know what kind of bird it was. You don't know anything, but you just know you saw this thing. So then your mind gets curious on, I kind of want to know what that bird is. And is it going to come back? Am I going to see it do that same thing? And you begin to, it's, you start your own little mini saga, your own little mini like adventure in your backyard of what these, what these birds are going to do. Then you find Uh yourself really in the rabbit hole, buying bird books, trying to identify what you saw what by color. You're, you're downloading bird apps. Uh, you <laughs> know that it made this sound, so you're trying to replicate this sound to your family. And then you start to go and you buy the food. And here you are. And here you here are. Here you are. You're in. <laughs> so I think... Um, you know, I think I've experienced a little bit of all of those levels, I yeah. must say, um, probably and beyond. And and really, I don't know anybody uh, aside from just maybe a, a few people that really didn't sort of follow that same trajectory into yeah. it. It, it. It can be this luring, capturing hobby lifestyle that is just it's just so much fun because they are. They are, they are silly. You yep. can begin to tell um, what they're up to. You begin to follow their patterns. And, and when you watch them year round, it's, it's really interesting to, be, to begin to pick up on, on how their behavior is so very different. And you said something earlier when we started talking about, um, that I know spring is coming, spring's upon us. So I begin to see this stuff happening with the birds. And it is, it's kind of like, it's all this built up anticipatory stuff on what we know to expect. We know we're going to start to see them carrying these mouths full of, of material to build their nests. And we watch them build their nests and it's, it's a beautiful thing. Um, It's, it's no different than when we go to like the dairy farm or the petting zoo and we see um, if you've ever done anything like this, maybe that's here in, here in our (laughs) Midwest, and we see a cow um, birthing a calf, and it's like you just you're just like totally fascinated by right. it. And I think um, I think there's there's something really rewarding and, and and a nice compliment to a homeowner when you begin to see that the birds are enjoying what you have for them, and you're yes. and they're finding your yard to be a haven and a sanctuary. And then you begin to think about what else you can do. Am I doing everything I can be doing for them? And it's sort of, it sort of just evolves from there. I have a lot of people reach out to me and say, I set up this, this feeder, but I, I don't ever see any birds come to it. And my, my immediate questions to them are, well, um, the placement of it, maybe what else around the yard is happening. And the, the fact of the matter is, is, um, if we think about somebody that just put a plate of food out for us in the middle of a field, there wouldn't really be a whole lot that would make us want to go and find that plate of food, nor would we know where to go for it. Yeah, um, We kind of just know where to go and find food based on what's around it. Uh, restaurants that are already surrounded by other things or, or um, clues. And so really that's what we as birders focus on what else we can build up for them. And it, it, it becomes this, whole addicting hobby and, yes. and satisfying um, sort of just means of enjoyment. And it takes you away. You you find that you're just, your mind is so focused on what it is that they're doing and so much less on whatever maybe was your biggest problem of the yes. day. And you, they're peaceful to watch and they're 
they offer serenity in their sounds and their behaviors. And it's it's all this sensory input. <laughs> yes. No, I love it. Listen, I uh, everything Katie's saying is exactly what happened to me. And uh, so let's do this. So people that follow me on Instagram, they know that I've got a, a bluebird house uh, in my front yard. Uh, and I'm, I've been waiting for these, my bluebirds to, to move in last year, uh, was a, and I've had a couple of bird tragedies. Okay. So, uh, we, we know that this is the, the circle of life. There's nature, there's cats roaming the neighborhood. There's all sorts of things that'll happen. And, you know, <laughs> the first tragedy that happened, uh, in my bir- backyard birding career was four years ago when I, we, I had an, I had a camera on a robin's nest and an owl, a barn owl in the middle of the night came and literally tore the heads off of these baby birds right on camera for me to see. It was devastating. You know, everyone that watched the story knows that the next morning I found one of the babies on the ground and we, I took it to a sanctuary and we nursed it back to health and then it it flew away. So last year uh, we had our bluebirds and um, unfortunately my cat, Henry, who I have a cat bib on, I have a bell on, I'm doing everything I can to keep this got a hold of mama bluebird and you know brought mama bluebird to our front door and so after i didn't see mama bluebird on the camera for a couple of days you know so i thought to myself these bluebirds have probably told the other bluebirds in the neighborhood carlos's yard is not a safe place and so so i i i've been waiting for these bluebirds to move in just today today being april the 5th my camera started going crazy cuz i'd see them coming in every you know maybe three times a day for the last week or two, put, you know, they bring in one piece of hay or whatever, and they drop it in. And I was like, what are they doing? Why aren't they building? But today was the day she's all, she's nonstop back and forth building the nest. I'm like, yes, we've got, we, you know, they, they've moved in. They're going to make it happen. Why don't you talk to us? You know, the excitement is palpable on my Instagram page and for me, but how can people attract birds to their property? Let's just start there. Okay. So just attracting birds in general, yeah, just just first in general because I want to do this. I want I want to first talk about because for me it was two phases. I, mm-hmm. I put bird food out first. Like I just I just wanted them to get close to my house, and I'm like, oh my gosh, there's like, you know, I put a bird feeder up, and I saw like eight different types of birds. One of them I'd never seen in my life. It was like bright yellow, and I was like, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. So then it, it that that was the beginning for me. Was like, look at these birds. They're coming to my yard. They're eating the bird food. This is really cool. And then mm-hmm. I'd love for us to move into, uh, let's let's try to help them nest in our yards. Okay. All right. Well, let's get right let's into go. it. I think uh, there are kind of a few different avenues to taking to get some birds to your yard. Uh, we we want to first think about the things that we can do on our end uh, that involve, like, like Carlos just said, putting out some feeders, yep. throwing some different types of birds out there and kind of seeing what happens. Of course, that's probably one of the most like in controllables I think we have. Uh, we go to the, I swear by wild birds. You guys are going to hear me say that place uh, name many times during this conversation because I find that they are truly they are all in and birding and they really want to help you do the backyard bird thing. Yes. Um, if you go to some of these big box stores, maybe they they may not just know some of the answers to some of these questions because they 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 carry the product. Let's be honest, um, they carry the product. But as Wild Birds um, employees, they are trained for this stuff, and they really so, is that a website? Is it a is it a brick and mortar store? What's Wild Birds? Brick and mortar store. They also have some um, online stuff that you can get, but they offer. 
uh, really good premium seed blends. Uh, yes, it is a little bit more expensive than you might find at some feed stores, but they eliminate yeah. a lot of that stuff that's oftentimes found in some seed blends that the birds kick out. So sometimes people will say, my birds are just tossing all the bird seed to the floor. And I will ask them, well, where did you, where, where did you happen <laughs> to buy it? Um, and, and I have made this mistake many Absolutely. times. Absolutely. I, we all start somewhere. And um, if, if it is, if it's a, what, the, what we call a, um, I don't want to say cheap seed blend because sometimes yeah. some, you know, bird seed is not cheap. It's expensive. Um, but if, if it contains the stuff inside of it that the birds are not interested in, they're going to, you are, you are going to watch them either shimmy it out with their feet or kick it uh-huh. out with their beaks because they're looking for that good stuff. Yeah. They, the high fat, they don't want a lot of that filler stuff um, that sometimes can be found in some seed blends. So okay. if you're going to pay, you know, $7 for a bag or you're going to pay $12 for a bag, sometimes it's worth that little extra to really see them do what you want them to do with it, which is Absolutely. eat it and tell all their friends and bring their friends <laughs> to the yard. Yes. Um, starting with good bird seed is, is always the ticket. Okay. To, um, we don't want to be throwing out our food scraps so much because sometimes they don't know there's just uh-huh. so they might ingest something that they can't digest. Or sometimes we have food that's got all kinds of additives and bleach and things like that. So really just sticking with that bird seed and making sure that the bird, um, uh, feeders and the nest, you know, houses and things like that, that we're putting that seed in are really visible. So a okay. lot of People will hang them from a tree and birds that are flying over are just going to see the top of that tree. They're not necessarily going to see the feeder. So um, construct having a a setup like a whole pole system where you have an actual pole uh, with the sort of like shepherd's hooks. That's what we have. Um, And you want to always add a baffle because or else you're just going to pay for all of your seed and it's likely going to go to squirrels and raccoons. Um, out in a visible place of your yard. So if you have something like that, that maybe isn't covered by some of that tree canopy, a lot of times that's all it takes. If you just move it out to an open space, because when they're flying over, they want to be able to scan and hone in on that. So um, different types of seed blends will attract different types of birds. My woodpeckers do not eat what the finches eat and the finches don't what the bluebirds eat and etc. So if you kind of want to know what the birds to buy you are going to be eating, um, first it, it helps to just know what kind of birds you have. The birds that are here in the Midwest are not going to be the same birds that are out in uh, Arizona and California. They may want completely different things. But what we do know is um, in places where it gets colder in the winter, they need a lot of fat in the nutty blends like peanuts um, and black oiled sunflower seeds and things like that. So really understanding what types of birds you have, what kind of birds you want to see come to your yard, and then knowing what they eat. And then just having a little bit of that variety. It's sort of like offering a buffet to the birds. And the more you offer, the more you're going to see. So I'd say that's one of the things that's more in our hands of what we can do. But another thing too, if, if maybe say we live in a place where we can't feed the birds, sometimes there are homeowners restrictions. Sometimes there are apartment restrictions. Um, Sometimes just what you plant attracts. Uh, Really before we provided for the birds, they were feasting off of the shrubs, the trees, the the plants, and you can simply plant for birds. Uh, we know that birds love to feast on berries, and they'll feast on the the little tiny insects that are on our native shrubs, and they'll feast on those caterpillars that are on our native trees. Um, a chickadee, 
for instance, uh-huh. uh, over the course of its one nest and one brood that it makes every year, it will feed those little babies inside that nest thousands of caterpillars. Thousands. Wow. So they really need that livestock. They need that that they need that um, nutrition to be able to provide for their young, um, just as much as they need to provide for themselves. So it goes yeah. beyond like the birds that are coming. It's it's also what they're feeding to their young too. Okay. Okay. No, that's that's fascinating. That's that's good. So so we we get some good bird seed. I, I actually just looked up wild birds, uh, and little did I mean you taught me something. I had no idea. There's actually one of these. 10 miles from my house. Yay! So, so there I've got to go get a frequent, I'm going to get a, become part of their club and get a little frequent flyer. Oh, um, I love card. they are such wonderful people all the way up to the top. The CEO oh. and owner, they're phenomenal people. I love it. I love it. I love that. Okay. So, so we're, we're going to get them here. People are going to start seeing them in their yards. And then I think the next phase of birding is, Again, watching them build their nests, you know, mm-hmm. how can we make sure that where, wherever we are is conducive to a bird wanting to build a nest? So let, let's first start start with birds that aren't building in cavities. Let's let's start with robins and nests that are more, you know, um, they can build in gutters. They can build in some places. Um, how can yeah. we make sure that, you know, or, or try our hardest to that they're building and nesting in our in our yard? Yeah. And good job on good job on that, because there is a big Thank you. There's. We have our cavity nesting birds that rely on those uh, structures that are inside of tree trunks and things like that with with holes that are made by something else that's already used it, whether that was yeah. a, a lot of times it's the woodpeckers that make those holes. Sometimes it's fallen branches and then that 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 leaves sort of that vacancy on the tree trunk. Um, and then we have our non-cavity nesters, our more open nest nesters like our finches and our robins, and they're constructing things that they find right there in your yard. So... Uh, robins are amazing. They will use lots of thick, dead um, pieces from your garden. So when you guys hear me uh, probably beat a dead horse on encouraging (laughs) not to clean up your garden, it's not to encourage laziness. It's not to encourage you to make your neighbors mad. It's simply to leave things there that are that nature is expecting to have be there. So Mm. a lot of um, overwintering stuff is 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 inside of all of that debris and inside of that plant litter. And your birds are relying on that to be there come late winter, early spring, when they start to build their nest. We yeah. don't have a store that they can go to and buy supplies. They are relying on that stuff from nature. So I'm looking outside right now at a robin and I see them. They're starting to forage in my garden on all that stuff that I haven't cleaned up yet. And they will yank those dead pieces off of there and fly and they will put together their nests truly using what they find right there in your backyard. So for those dead grasses, those dead, um, you know, those plant stems that die back and then they kind kind of become, they kind of look like a wet noodle and they love that stuff. That's their housing material and they the mud. Um, So it's really nice if you have a little bit of a boggy area, they will rely on that mud. Um, We know April can be really rainy. So those, um, those are the types of things that a robin might use. And then we think about our, our nesters, like our, our chickadees or our finches, and they use a little bit more delicate material. So uh, a telltale sign that you've got a chickadee nesting is you see that nest made of moss. Chickadees oh, okay. use out of moss. So kind of leaving those shady spaces, if you have moss growing there, it uh, may not be a surprise to you to see them using that for their nesting material. So 
um, going back to this whole concept of, of nature being a whole, it's, it's an all-in entity, um, all the way down to what the birds are using to make for uh, their nests be complete. Yes. No, that that's great. Let's get to let's get to some of the, you know, what I'm thinking is for me the creme de la creme. I'm trying to attract these bluebirds to my yard. I went and I bought my bluebird box and I'm getting it in. And last year, I mean th- there's all kinds of reasons why they may or may not nest um in your bluebird box. Mm-hmm. Help us get helps those of those of us that want to get bluebirds to nest in our bluebird houses. How can we help that happen? That's such a good question. So uh, depending on where you are in the the United States, we have three different types of bluebirds. We have Western bluebirds, we have mountain bluebirds, and then we have Eastern bluebirds. And they vary greatly in their size. So if you're listening and you know you're in in any one of those specific categories, um, your nest box that you would want to put up for them. So a nest box is essentially a structure that offers the same nesting opportunity for a bird as what a cavity would of a tree. And the reason is somebody might be thinking, well, why don't we just let them nest in the trees? There are a lot of things um, that over time have affected some of our cavity nesting birds, like our bluebirds, from being able to just successfully do that. Um, one is being, we're just losing some of those trees. Uh, trees are coming down for different things being built, uh, different you know um, developments. And sometimes those cavity sites are taken over by other birds. So a lot of birds are competing for those cavity sites. They know an opportunity when they see it and they want it. So by putting up these nest boxes, we're essentially offering a space just for them. It's like their own reserved hotel room if they find it. Yes. And it's uh it's it's we are setting them up with an even even greater opportunity and it's nice for us because it allows an a means of of being able to monitor it for them. So where you are in the US, depending on your bird size, there are different nest boxes that cater to that size of the bird because Okay. Bluebirds are not the same size as Western bluebirds, so you wow. want to pay into that with the nest um, box that you are looking at. Here in the Eastern bluebird population areas, there are quite a few to choose from. I think you have just the standard nest box, yeah. which that's great. Um, that's one of our probably most sought after and popular nest boxes. I use one that's called the Gilbertson, and okay. it kind of looks like a birch log. And the reason for that is because. Um, I live in an area where house sparrows are a problem and they are a non-native invasive species of birds that just wreaks havoc on our native nesting birds. Um, for, for no reason, they just, uh, this might be brutal to hear, but they will <laughs> go and kill them just, just because. And that, which are these birds? These are the house sparrows. So our Eurasian yes. house sparrows, um, they're very nasty to our, our yeah. birds. So I chose this nest box style because it's one that over time has been proven that they don't, they don't tend to go for. They don't really, okay. like, not a, it's not favorable to them because they like a bigger nesting opportunity. Um, and so that's what uh, my bluebirds are currently um, almost done building a nest in right now. And so paying attention to the nest box type and size is, is, the number one key, depending on where you are in the country. Um, but if you just want to just attract, attract bluebirds in general, having that nest box up is, is first and foremost important because they, they will find that, but yeah. they also are one of the 
only birds that really loves mealworms, dried mealworms. So if you put mealworms out in something that's the color blue, because they're attracted to blue, their eye goes right to blue. So Uh like um, wild birds, (laughs) told you I would say their name a lot. They have specific (laughs) bluebird feeders that are blue. So they will find those feeders and they... Um, you could put the mealworms right in there. And equally important to providing the food, we know our bluebirds love a cl- good, clean water source. Okay. So a bird bath, um, something that's even got a little bit of, of movement to the water. So they love a mister. They love a oh. water wiggler. Um, they love bird baths or or little tiny ponds, anything like that. They're very attracted to water. So mealworms. Uh, bird bath or a water source, the color uh-huh. blue, and a nest box. Wow! That's hey, a golden recipe for attracting bluebirds. Hey, Heather, I've got I, I got about a hundred more dollars I have to spend. FYI, before in order to get these bluebirds, so I think suddenly, yeah, uh, yeah. all of a sudden, all these the gift card to Wild Bird or yeah, Wild Bird <laughs> Limited, right? So, this podcast is not sponsored by Wild Birds, but maybe they can sponsor one. Yeah, of my podcasts yes, yeah, up. I should say that I'm not affiliated. But yeah. I, really love them. They're, they're fantastic. And actually that's how I knew about the potential of even having bluebirds. I went to a, a bluebirds workshop there. That's another great thing about wild birds is depending okay. on patient, they offer free little oh. uh, workshops where you can learn all about birds. And I, I thought it. I'm going to give this a try. And they, um, they are known to like perching places. So if you yep. live in an area that has a fence or power lines or a nice roof line, or let's say, you know, yeah. you have a structure that's kind of linear. They yeah. love to perch because they fly, uh, they, they fly around and they will catch their, their, their food, their insects right in flight, um, that they're using to feed. So they're, they're perching, looking for that food opportunity. Unlike our thrush birds, like our robins that, that, like you said, walk around and get their food right out of the ground. So, right. um, anything that's got a little bit of protection from just openness uh but also an open area is what they go for so a nice blend between an open space and uh-huh. some cover for safety yeah okay um i'm gonna i'm gonna throw some rapid uh questions at you as, as we're finishing out here questions that i know people are gonna have so people open their front door and and they've got a, a wreath on their front door and suddenly there is a nest with right. some eggs, what, can they move it? Do they just go out the back door for the next month? What what do they need to do? That will likely, most likely, be the nest of a house finch, and okay. they have that name because they tend to make their nests around houses. They're very, very adaptable to people. Okay. Um, a lot of times, people may have a secondary door that for a few weeks. Though it puts you out a little bit, you might have to take that second door. Maybe if you have a brief <laughs> door or a garage door or something, or you just kind of put something over that door and tell the kids the store is off limits for for a little while. We have birds nesting. But yeah. yes, if you have that front door wreath, chances are your, your house finches are going to find it and they're going to make that nest. Um, it's a tricky nest to, to try to move because what they do okay. is they kind of wedge that nest in between the wreath and the door uh-huh. itself. It kind of makes it cupped for them. Yeah. And uh, they they lay these little tiny delicate eggs that um, it can be tricky to try to tamper with and not have it end up posing harm to those eggs. Okay. So okay. Um, I know several people that have had them nest on their front door wreaths and <laughs> even just using that door, but using it with, with, with strong caution and not yeah. letting 
door slam, it's risky. But if it's your only door, that yeah. makes the best bet. And just kind of keeping an eye out. But uh, they will, yeah, the finches will, they'll fly away to an area uh-huh. they can still watch you. And they're going to keep an eye on you to make sure that their nest is safe. And they that, may yell at right. you a little bit. But um, the second you're out of their uh, area, they'll come right back to the nest. Okay. Okay. That's good. Um, what about... Um, a lot of people will DM me. This is what happens. People DM me and then I just DM Katie. Okay. And then that, that that's Katie's where I get all my information. Um, but people, people will a lot of times be excited about the Robin's nests or, and, and the eggs that they see are bluebirds, but then they see an egg that doesn't look like any of the other eggs. And a lot for a lot of people are finding in their, um, in Robin's nests, they're, mm-hmm. they're finding a different, egg. They're like, how did they lay an egg that doesn't look like any of the other eggs? Mm-hmm. Talk to us about, about that and uh, what they that, need to do. That's, that's from a bird that's called a cowbird. It is a parasitic bird. It's a native bird. So unfortunately we cannot tamper with anything when that yeah. does happen. But what a cowbird does is it kind of sits and it watches and it's on the prowl for one of those non-cavity nesting birds that they watch build a nest. And that mama bird that is impregnated, that mama cowbird, she waits and for that prime opportunity to it, it's it's kind of sad what they do. But what they do is they boot one of the native or excuse me, one of the one of the birds that made that nest Uh uh eggs out. It shoes it on out and it lays Uh its own egg in there and it sort of dupes and tricks that mama into caring for its young. Wow. it replaces one or more eggs of that bird's nest that made that nest. And some birds have gotten really good over time of knowing that there's been a cowbird sort of uh-huh. takeover. Yeah. And they will physically remove those eggs. Okay. Uh, but sometimes if like, if say for instance, if we or that bird itself try to intervene with what she know, what that cowbird knows they, they did on purpose, they uh-huh. may try to retaliate. So, Oh, and, and like it, kill it all the eggs. Far. And sometimes people will actually, uh, a lot of times we see the wrens and the finches, uh, you'll see them caring for their young and then caring for this bird that's like three times the size of their <laughs> young. And they're like, why is that one baby so much bigger? And yeah. you, it will, it will look bigger the second it's out of that egg in the nest. Wow. That's because it's a cowbird and they just don't know. They think it's uh-huh. one of their own. And um, sometimes what unfortunately ends up happening is uh, some of those other babies end up perishing because they just don't get the same level of care as the big, sure. the big baby, the big yeah. baby. Wow. Guys, just know it's a wild world out there. I mean, you're, if you're going to get into this bird thing, you're, you you got to go in with a tough heart. That's right. It's right. And, and, and sometimes I, I, don't love seeing that that happened, but at the same time that it, it, it balances everything out somehow, yeah. some way. Um, it's a, it's one of those birds it's protected. We cannot tamper with it. Yeah. it. It stinks to see it happen, but, um, but yeah. at the same token to, to, to just serve as an uplifting piece to you all. Cause I know I needed to hear this when I first learned about yeah. uh, birds often do lay way more eggs than they know will survive in the long run. Just like monarchs, monarchs, yeah. Um, that monarch can lay hundreds of eggs at a time, and we know that that chance and um, level of survival is is minimal. So they yeah. they tend to go above and beyond with that, and so, they have too. Yeah, no, that that's so good. You know, one of the things last year that Katie helped me with is um, there were. I don't know what kind of birds, but there were other little cavity dwellers coming into my bluebird box. 
um, and before the bluebirds got there. And I was like, oh no, like, what do I do? I, I, this is a bluebird box. But then I, I, I started realizing, well, actually like it's, it's a bird box. Like it, it's a box that I've, that I put out there for, a, you know, a cavity nester to come in and, and do, but you did help me with, I, I put like a little, um, like a, a, a piece of cardboard that dropped down in front of the hole. And magically, just like you said, these, these other birds stopped going in there and the bluebirds went in. And yeah. what, what was that thing? There are some things that we can kind of do to make it more conducive for our bluebirds. And and over time, I really learned sort of the the laws, I guess, if you will, yeah. of what we are and, able, what are, and are not able to do based on uh, bird etiquette and, and native birding and, and things that we can and cannot interfere with as what we call as ourselves as landlords. Yes. So one of those things that Carlos just mentioned is that he had uh, he had a house wren that was trying yes. to take uh, and go into his nest box. The house wren is one of those wrens too, that is also native. It is protected. We cannot tamper with it. Um, and so house wrens are opportunists to nest box too. But the difference in what they do is they will try to find any nesting opportunity on your property and they will build a nest in there, even if they don't have intentions of using it. Totally. And so they call those their dummy nests. Well, we call those their dummy nests. They <laughs> dummy nests. We do. And if we see that they're not being used, and a lot of times it's just what they'll do is they'll stuff a ton of sticks inside. Yes, sticks. Just so that another bird can't use it. And yep. uh, what Carlos is talking about, about the piece of cardboard that he put over the top, that creates a blind so that that house wren won't see another hole that it has to stuff with those yep. sticks. Um, they will only go and do that if they see that hole opening to something um, and try to just occupy it with their own sticks and make it uh, a dummy full nest that another bird cannot use. So they kind of try to block other birds in that way. And by putting that cardboard flap over it, it, it created that barrier to its its line of vision. Uh, the bluebirds adapt just fine. I have to put mine on my nest boxes every year because sometimes yep. what they try to do is they'll try to take that nest over after the bluebirds have laid eggs. And when that happens, they will peck the eggs. They will peck wow. them all and then they will not be viable. Um, they're no longer uh, uh, alive at that point. Yeah. We want to, of course, prevent that from happening. And that's one of those things that we as bluebird, quote, landlords can do. Uh, <laughs> it's not hurting the house run. It's just simply saying, no, you can't go and fill that nest box up, even yeah. though you do. <laughs> that, and, and so so if someone has a, a bluebird that has laid eggs, it's not, um, it won't mess things up if they put the little, the the guard, the wren guard on the, on the box for the bluebirds, they can still get in and out. That's right. So you may get, you may want to take it down if you see that they're struggling to get used to it after a few attempts. Nothing will stand in that way of mama and papa getting to those yeah. babies if there are eggs in there and if there are babies in there. So uh, when when it comes to putting up a wren guard, you want to put it up uh, after they've laid their first egg. So okay. if you Google wren guard, W-R-E-N guard, um, you will see that you can make them as, as easy as just using uh, like, like I do and like Carlos said, he did a piece of cardboard. Um, yeah. Because again, we know birding can be pricey, so we want to save yeah. money. We can. So I find a piece of cardboard. I make, I weatherproof it by just putting some tape around it. And you just want to make sure it's not hanging any further uh, lower than the hole opening itself. So it's just enough to cover that hole. Yes. They will, um, 
they will know to fly right under it. And it does not interfere with them at all. It doesn't interfere with them with uh, raising those babies. And it doesn't, it actually doesn't interfere with the fledglings leaving either. So awesome. um, Awesome. They know, they know how to navigate around that just fine. Katie, I could talk to you about this stuff for seven straight hours. Um, you are a gift to so many people. Oh. This has been so good. Thank you. Thank you, Carlos. And and thank you guys for listening in. And uh, it, it's it's my joy and my pleasure. Like he said, it's it's one of those topics I could talk for hours. And, and I enjoy that so many people are wanting to have this conversation about birding and nature and how to just better cater to it with these guards that we have and have it be a reward to us because we get to watch it all. So it really becomes a beautiful um, dynamic and you begin to look at your yard and your space in a whole nother way. And you find it's very therapeutic, very Very, game changing. Very well, where, where can, um, uh, where, where can people follow your, your account to get their morning coffee breath of fresh air like I do every single day? My Instagram account is my little Kate Cod. It's all one word and it's Kate Cod, short for Katie. And, uh, and, and it's one of those places that I hope if you stop, you, you do find refreshing and just a little slice of peace and yes. nature and enjoyment as you go on about your scroll. I know you have lots of places that you can choose to land on in the Instagram world, but hopefully this might be one that just kind of makes you want to stop and pause for a minute and take a yes. take Everybody go follow uh, our little Kate Cod and uh, um, you, you will, you, you'll find it. Thank you, Kate. This has been amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me today and for this wonderful conversation. That was amazing. Thank you, Katie, so much from the Human Hope Familia. Hopefully you guys got exactly what I told you you were going to get out of that. Listen, inside of nature, when you get out there in the middle of it, you're going to find healing. And, uh, you know, there's so much more than just bluebirds and butterflies and all the things that can actually give you the breath you didn't know that you needed. That's it. What do you guys think? Should we do some more lighthearted things like this? I think we should mix it up. Some of the deep stuff, some of the light stuff, some of the shallow stuff. I think it is all very helpful in our journey to find hope as human beings. Guys, that is it. I will see you next week on another episode of Human Hope. Thank you.